Thank you for joining episode three of Great Stakeholder Expectations featuring Pam Markogliese and Lisa Bieber of Freshfields and Pat Tucker and Garrett Musikowski of FTI. We'd like to talk a little bit today about the S of ESG social issues. And one of the areas that we continued to see significant support in the 2022 proxy season were social issues. What types of issues are investors backing and why do you think that is, Pam? I think that um, on the S front, there are a number of proposals and issues that investors continue to be interested in that are continuing. So for example, diversity at all levels, whether it's board management or employees, that continues to be very important. I think other issues of importance continue to be things that we have seen as a result of the pandemic. So how are you treating your employees, you know, health and safety issues, that kind of stuff. And then there are other issues that are really starting to emerge and become more front and center. And for example, the racial equity audits, those really, I think, to my mind, were a significant change in this proxy season. So last, in the prior proxy season, so 2021, there had been a number of proposals. They had largely been submitted to financial institutions and they didn't really pass. But this year, that that was different. There were a significant greater number that were submitted. It wasn't just submitted to financial institutions and many of them did pass. And I think this goes to underscore sort of this maturation of the thought process that we're seeing on many of these ESG issues, which is to say, you know, during the pandemic and as a result of some of the racial and social protests that we saw in the last couple of years, many companies went out and publicly stated that these issues are important and they're going to commit to doing better and they're going to do all of this stuff. And so I think when these proposals came onto the ballot, investors said, well, companies, you have been telling us that these are important to you. And so this proposal squarely aligns with the kinds of things that you have been describing as important and critical to your business. And so therefore, these kinds of issues make sense. And these are the kinds of issues that we're going to support. And so I think that that is really kind of a a logical reaction to those proposals and sort of makes sense in the in the evolution of how these how these proposals have been evolving. I I think about ESG sometimes as kind of three different buckets of maturity and and governance probably being the most mature. We are at a a stage in governance where investors are prescribing exactly what they believe is good governance. On environmental, we are at a stage where we've moved a little bit past just disclosure and measure to setting specific targets. S is really probably the least mature aspect of ESG. It's also probably the most broadly defined bucket where it can include almost anything um, that falls outside of environmental and governance. It's kind of the rest of it. Although I do think it's it's really a, a fascinating topic where we're going to see really increased attention. Uh, the employee connection to the company is one that is going to be more closely scrutinized. There is a lot of energy behind that. You know, For example, labor unions have never been uh, more popular in the last 50 years than they are right now. Um, and so I think we're seeing that kind of similar evolution where if you are in the, uh, you know, a well-written proposal on a social topic, much like Pam was talking about on gender and racial equity topics, for example, you're probably going to see a strong support if it is written in a way that's aiming toward measurement and initial disclosure. I think that's the era we are in right now. Um, and so I think we're going to continue to see that where proposals in the S front get to be kind of ahead of their skis on kind of prescribing or demanding on specific targets, 
you might see a little bit more um, pushback, but there's going to be broad support for that initial phase of just measure and tell me what you've got here. And Pat, you mentioned kind of social can encompass everything non-ENS, but it often bleeds into environmental and, and governance issues. You know, I think in terms of environmental issues, you see topics like environmental justice and governance, I think, of the California diversity laws. And those were recently overturned, although they're subject to appeal. Does this change the diversity landscape? Uh, Lisa, what do, you, what do you think here? So it's an interesting question because you have these two laws in California that required women and minority representation on boards. However, the compliance or compliance with the laws tended to be relatively high until some of the step up provisions kicked in this past year. But companies weren't complying because they were fearful of not complying with the law. There were actually no fines that were ever levied under each of the diversity laws. There were kind of name and shame lists for companies that were out of compliance, but it became really a reputational issue and an issue that investors have been championing for a long time. And so the absence of these laws, while there are probably some boards of directors that really focused on compliance because they didn't want to run afoul of legal requirements, they also don't want to run afoul of their investors and what their investors want. And so while company compliance was probably at the top of the list. Now, the failure to have diversity on the board can have adverse consequences for the chair of NomGov or all of NomGov or the entire board in really extreme effects. And so the impact of failing to have diversity is much more personal to directors these days, which itself is a motivation for continuing to have diversity, but it's also a reputational issue for the company. And when a board is thinking about managing its risks and its its oversight and how it thinks about presenting the face of the company forward, these issues have to be top of mind. And so while the, the laws, I think, continue to be subject to appeal and there's a question about whether or not they might ever be reinstated in some form, the pressures on the company and the, the forward movement hasn't really changed all that much. Pam, do you agree? Oh, I, I completely agree with that. And I think that, um, you know, companies who are not paying sufficient attention to diversity at, at the board level, but frankly, at all levels, really have other issues, possibly bigger issues than just violating a statute. And so I think this has become a very important issue for, for all companies these days. But it does raise an interesting question. And Pat, maybe you can kick us off on this one. How do social issues make their way to the ballot? What is the process there? And not in terms of like legal process, but really more in terms of thought process. Like how does the issue du jour get identified and who decides what's worthy and what's not? And where do those pressures come from? Yeah, much, much like I talked about with the S being kind of the broadest bucket, the path to define S issues is probably also one that you see the, the kind of fastest evolution, so to speak. Um, it is, a, as we've talked about, almost an annual exercise to figure out where is this going? And in many ways, S proposals are reflective of um, society at large and what we're talking about. But you, you need to recognize that because of the, the way the, the proxy system works, these issues are, are typically about a year delayed, um, sometimes even more. Um, I know you, you talked about the success of civil rights audits over the last year. That's something I think we had been waiting for 
after the racial awakening over the over the summer and the pandemic, we were really expecting to start to see that show up on the corporate ballot box. And it started to really show up in a much bigger way with a much more success over the last season. So I think when we start to think about what are the types of issues that we're talking about in society right now and how will they start to show up on the ballot box? My number one focus is um, as it relates to labor um, and employee rights. Um, we have seen kind of an extended conversation over on that throughout the pandemic. Um, you've seen the broader labor movement with continued success. You've seen Starbucks and Amazon and others look at that. And labor itself is an active filer of shareholder proposals. I would very much focus on that topic and very much uh, expect to see continued focus both on civil rights audits, gender pay gap type issues, but in addition to that, look for how organizing efforts are treated, how anti-union efforts and, and what kind of policies a company would have on that type of front. Other issues we're, we're thinking about here, certainly um, abortion as it relates to uh, reproductive care. Um, I think you could see that on both both sides of the coin, pushing companies to di- disclose their policies on, on reproductive care, but also on a more conservative side, pushing them to affirm kind of upholding the law or areas like that. And then another interesting area we're, we're seeing a little bit more on um, relates to China and human rights. This is one where you might see both left and right political sides filing disclosure Nike right now, in fact, is facing one as it relates to a pause from sourcing cotton from China. So it's certainly a, a, an area we're, we're going to continue to pay attention to, just given the constant conversation right now between U.S.-China relations. Pat, I, I have one question that I want to press on a little bit, because there are social proposals that have been around for years. So we've seen reproductive justice proposals on the ballot box at least for the last five years, one or two not well-known proponents. We also saw kind of civil rights audits or racial equity audits, you know, creeping up again, one or two proponents. But when you're talking about a movement, you're talking about a much more organized, broader effort. Can you talk about a little bit about how you draw that distinction and how that impacts companies, whether they are the recipient of a proposal that is really like one of one or one of two versus a much more coordinated, broad effort? Yeah, it's a it's a great point because you do see amongst the existing professional shareholder proposal crowd a coordinated effort often. In fact, uh, New York State will will often announce their campaign for the season uh, on the shareholder proposal front. And so there there's a from our point of view for a company that receives one, the first question is who filed it and where do they sit in that interconnection of the shareholder proposal universe. Sometimes these proposal filers will split up the world, so to speak. They will have a organized campaign to put forth the proposals in as many companies as possible. But the proposal writing is fairly sophisticated, even though the filer itself may not be have a, a strong history of support. And so you want to balance that of knowing kind of is this a campaign issue or is this a one-off issue that we don't expect to see elsewhere and so looking at places like Trillium or Green Century or As You So to understand where their primary focuses are this year. They get together, they have have meetings, they often publish kind of what they're thinking. So there are, there are ways to understand where the, the professional crowd is leading the kind of broader adoption versus the perpetuation of, of one-off proposals. And Pat, I would, I would just add the once a campaign or, or a movement, quote, quote so to speak, 
gets going, it kind of serves as a template, either, you know, unofficially or officially, you know, I think two years ago when all the shareholder proposals around political disclosure started passing and then it was like at record clips, those were passing and there was a, a standard proposal with the same resolve clause with the same supporting statement that the filers just kept using, right? And it's recognized within the market that this is now, it's they've created the market norm, right? They've created the threshold for companies to meet and when those proposals hit the ballot, investors knew they were going to support them. There was very little debate internally with stewardship teams if they needed to support them because that movement had already taken place. And so I think it's when they do that and when there's this, this governance world that's so small and interconnected, it almost makes it easier for the stewardship teams to, to tack on to that support. Yeah, and it's a, it's a great segue to, to think about. We've talked a lot about um, labor. We've talked about civil rights audits. Kind of the broader topic of human rights, you know, what's the climate on these right now? And is there an ex area where you're expecting more attention in, in the near term? Lisa, what, what are you thinking on this topic right now? And it's an area that I think is a much broader trend than shareholder proposals. We've started to hear a lot from our clients about how to think about human rights, what's going on in their supply chain. We've got a lot of regulation that's coming out of Europe and a little bit in the U.S., but much more in Europe. And companies are really thinking about what their role is in terms of compliance, but also where they kind of stand politically and socially on these issues. And so there have been some high profile cases where, or instances where companies have, you know, made statements, you know, in support of human rights. And then it was later uncovered that in their supply chain or in their company overall, there were issues and those turned into large scale reputational issues or larger scale reputational issues. And that's where all of this kind of leads is back to a, a reputational issue. And so we've seen a couple of flavors of human rights proposals. But Pat, I think you hit it on the head when you said, as proponents and investors are more focused on China, as there is more attention to this, these issues, we're starting to see, just as you talked about, you know, the kind of one-off proponents. And it seems like it's only a matter of time until there is a more organized effort in these areas where it becomes more of a focus. 100% agree. And, you know, we mentioned the supply chain a lot and conducting human rights due diligence within your supply chain. One of the interesting things with me with human rights proposals is that they, in relative to a civil rights audit or a racial equity audit, those are very generic, right? They cover all of your stakeholders and kind of a broad assessment of your impact on your stakeholders. Human rights proposals can fit that bucket, but there were also a couple this year that were very narrowed on specific products. I think Amazon had one on kind of the cloud products and surveillance and human rights violations from customers using that product, right? And, and Disney had one from the National Legal and Policy Center, which traditionally people have deemed it anti-ESG or anti-social filer. That proposal was related to just releasing the Mulan film in certain regions of China, and that got 37%. So it was very close to passing. I think that's an interesting nuance between human rights proposals and civil rights audits is one is more generic and human rights can be as well, but can also hone in very on a very specific issue. And I think that's an interesting difference between the two. That becomes in some ways much more difficult to defend, right? Because when you think about your response to a more generic proposal, yes, you want to tailor it to the company, but there is some comfort that maybe everyone's getting the proposal and you can look left and you can look right and see what other people are doing and form your own response. But if if that proposal is so specific to your company, it really shines much more of a spotlight and heightens 
the risks in terms of how a company wants to respond. And so, Lisa, how do you think about that? Because, you know, there's a lot of talk about proposals being over micromanaging and over prescriptive. But here we're also seeing proposals that are seeing relative success on very specific products. Some would argue that those are conflicting statements. How do you break that down? I mean, I think it goes back to the A, materiality discussion we've had in some of our prior discussions about what is material. And then B, it also goes to what do your stakeholders care about? And, you know, sometimes that drives a consideration of what's material. But if there is a large scale response to a proposal like that and you know, a company talks to its, not just its investors, but its stakeholders, and it finds out that these issues really resonate with them. Well, whether you win or lose a shareholder proposal, even if your investors don't care, but your employees care very much, it's incumbent on a company to figure out how to manage their stakeholders and how to respond. And so on some of these types of proposals, it's it's not even about whether the proposal is successful, but about how a company is going to manage its stakeholders and address the underlying issues. Yeah, I think that's a it's a great point because at the core of all of this, talking about S being the broadest issue, it is also the one I think that comes with the most reputational risk. It covers topics that can be really sensitive and really volatile. And we talked a little bit about the, the pushback on ESG. And, and I think my counsel to clients is to think about ESG and your commitments in these areas, a little bit like the equity markets. Don't race up when times are good to overdisclose and jump on the bandwagon, so to speak, but also don't walk away from it when there's pressure on this. You know, you really think need to closely align your business priorities, your mission, and your stakeholder expectations into one carefully articulated path that you're going down and hang with it, even under pressure, as long as you are kind of sticking to your your knitting, um, I think you'll find much more resiliency and ability to navigate some of these near-term challenges. 